started here. I think there are um, a lot of ways to um, measure how well you know somebody. Um, we know what they like. We knew where they grew up. We know their favorite song or what kind of clothes they generally wear, what they like in their coffee, stuff like that. But I think there's a, a really good indicator that we don't think about much when we're thinking about how well we know somebody. And, and that is, what makes somebody mad? Do you, I mean, because like looking at some of you guys, I mean, I've known you for years and I don't have a clue what makes you mad because I don't know that I've ever seen some of you mad. Now I can look at these folks right here who live in my home and I pretty much know what makes them mad. And sometimes I do it on purpose because that's the kind of person I am. Um, and sometimes I do that to Jody too. So she don't live in my home, but um, I know what makes her mad too. So, but Knowing what makes somebody mad, I think is a really, and this, is, this may be, seem like a weird statement, I think it's a really good sign of intimacy, how well you know somebody, down to details. Well, let me ask you this question. How well do you know Jesus? I mean, right, it's a little baby Jesus meek and mild season, right? Or right at it. And we've got a picture of this... Mealy mouth, mamby pamby. It's just, just Jesus. But let me tell you something, y'all. We're going to blow that up today. We're going to blow up plumb up this week, the next week, and the following week. Because what you're going to see in today's message and the next two messages is not little baby Jesus meek and mild. You're going to see a Jesus who is angry. And we've seen that before. He, he, he turned the tables over and ran the people out of the temple uh, a few weeks ago. But you're going to hear words out of Jesus' mouth in these, next few pa- in these next few messages that are going to shock you. And I think that's good. Because it helps us to know Him more. It helps us to know Him better. And it helps us to know how we should and can be like him in his anger. And that's important. Anybody ever not get mad in your life? Right. So there's a way to handle this, right? So again, with today's message and then through the next two, we are going to see a side of Jesus that we've seen hints of here and there, but is put on full display in what's left of Matthew 23. It's a side of Jesus that is passionately angry about hypocrisy. And while we've heard him denounce hypocrisy in fits and spurts before, these remaining verses in Matthew 23 give full vent to his anger. And we'll know Jesus better as a result of having studied them, and we'll be better informed as to what what should anger us And how to run from the things that anger God. And that's Christianity 101. So, if you would, please stand. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 to 22. Caveat. You'll see when we don't go somewhere. But we do believe that these are the very words of God. And these are 
the words that Jesus Christ spoke, the God-man, while he was on the earth, here in this last week of his life, as he denounces these scribes and Pharisees. And just listen to this, and sometimes we just need to put our hands over our mouths and listen. Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 to 22. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits Upon it. Let's pray. Oh God, right now, please, in me, in us, soften our hearts. God, I believe that passages like this make us clench our fist at you. And we go into defense mode and want to tell you why you're wrong. But God, may it never be. Show us where we are wrong. Correct us. Show us our hypocrisy. Call us out. And show us the love that you have for us. So that we might walk in the path that you have designed for us. And help others to find that path as well. Holy Spirit, please teach us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. (laughs) So yeah, just, just reading that. Any doubt of where we're going today? Any doubt in how Jesus feels in this passage today? I mean, it's, it's clear, right? I mean, this is not nuance. This is not uh, Jesus being tactful and choosing His words carefully. Jesus always chose the right words. He said the right things. And these words that He uses today, and again, in the next two weeks, as we finish chapter 23, are harsh. They're hard. He's angry. And we should be too. So, let's start here in verse 13. But, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So, again, we're still (laughs) in Wednesday of Holy Week. The last week of Jesus' life, this is his last public appearance in the temple. And we've seen that over the past several messages, back and all the way up to the day that he walked into Jerusalem and they saw the, the fig tree withered. From that point on has been what's going on here. Okay, um, And last week, he had talked to the crowds and his disciples specifically But this week, he turns his attention and his focus like a laser on the scribes and the Pharisees. 
Again, last week he's talking to the crowd and the disciples, but here he levels all of what's left in this passage in Matthew 23 against the scribes and the Pharisees. And we're going to have three messages counting today on the rest of Matthew 23 in which Jesus is going to pronounce seven woes. Don mentioned the woes from Isaiah. And we're going to look at two, three, and two woes over this week and the next two weeks. Today we're going to look at two, three next week, and two the following week. And just as a reminder, again, yes, we are on Wednesday, the last week of Jesus' life. And He is completing His last public message in the temple. His last public teaching with the crowds, the disciples, the scribes, and the Pharisees all gathered around Him. Now, I want to, before we jump into this, I want to rewind. And I want to go way back, way back, way back to Jesus' first public message that's recorded in Matthew, which we saw in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, which we call the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? We looked at that a long time ago. Uh, It was September 2nd, 2018 was our first message in Matthew, by the way. I went back and looked. Um, And once we got to chapter 5, we started the Sermon on the Mount... And the first section of that Sermon on the Mount, the first section there in chapter 5, is called what? Is the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes, those start with what word? Do you remember? Blessed or blessed. I'll use the Shakespearean pronunciation so that I might feel more important. Blessed. Blessed are what the Beatitudes started with, all of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And we said that in that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was setting forth what the citizens of the kingdom of heaven looked like. And that Sermon on the Mount was not a set of commandments to do, but rather a description of who these citizens of the kingdom were. Now, when we look back at what we read today, what word is going to be prominent that I mentioned that he's saying to and about the scribes and the Pharisees? And the word is, woe. And that stands in direct contrast to the blessedness of those who are in the kingdom. So neat to see the literary style of Matthew. So Jesus' first public message was blessed, 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 blessed. And this last public message is woe, 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 woe. Seven times woe. So instead of blessed, the word is woe. And we're going to see that in verses 13, 15, 16, 23, 25, 27, and 29. Where Jesus pronounces woes upon the scribes and Pharisees. It's like the Sermon on the Mount reversed. So opening his public ministry, describing the blessedness of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and he'll end his public ministry here in Matthew 23, describing the woes that are coming upon those who think that they're the elite in God's kingdom, but who really are woeful. Now that word woe is going to be important to understand today and over the next two weeks. It's the word O-U-A-I, U-A-I. And it's an onomatopoeia. Anybody know what an onomatopoeia is? I can't spell it, but I can tell you what it is. It's a word that sounds like what it is. How? Bark, bark, bark. Those are onomatopoeic words. 
And this word, uai, which sounds Hawaiian, doesn't it? Uai is like that. Uh, John MacArthur actually described it as the sound like a howl. And it's an exclamation, okay? It relates to adversity or misery. And the most common place that it was used before Jesus uses it here in the first century was in the prophetic writings, like Don was mentioning there in Isaiah. The prophets would declare woe upon those whom God had appointed for judgment. And these proclamations of woe preceded doom and destruction for the ones that the woe was prescribed to. And who is Jesus laying down these woes to here? But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And last week we expanded on who the scribes and the Pharisees were, so we won't go there again. You can look back at last week's message if you need to do that. And we've seen over and over and over again that these religious leaders, these scribes and Pharisees, were people that the common people looked up to and looked at as examples And these leaders, these scribes, these Pharisees were so often targeting Jesus to try to trap him, to try to trick him because they hated him. They despised him. He was undoing all of their religious stuff and they couldn't stand him. Jesus says here and in many other places that these woes are coming. Why? Because they are hypocrites. And that word we've said many times before means play actor. One who plays a part on the stage, a pretender. And in this context, Jesus is saying that the scribes and the Pharisees are acting pious, acting religious on the outside, but their inside life, their head, their hearts, their true selves were not pious, nor were they holy or religious. Instead, they were playing the game, acting the part in order to receive praise from men. And we saw that in the Sermon on the Mount too. Jesus literally said that they did what they did, these scribes and Pharisees, in order to be seen by men. My phone's ringing there. They did what they did to be seen by men. And last week Jesus said that they loved the public adulation of sitting in Moses' seat and in the important places at public events. They lived their lives to hear other people praise them. And the part they played was as religious, God-fearing, God-loving men. But they weren't. It was their role as religious leaders, as zealous religious people that got them what they wanted from the audience that they performed for. And what brought Jesus to his conclusion that they were hypocrites? Well, that's what we're going to look at through the rest of the chapter. And we see the first reason here in verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for, there's, here comes a reason, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Now there's a lot there. And it surely does show some woe. They are hypocrites, play actors, for they shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And if that's true, would we all agree that's a bad thing? To shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. If somebody was walking up to this door right now and I said, Hey there, slam. They would be like, what just happened? Like, We'll go to the other door. And if I walked over to the other door and I said, Hey there, slam. What am I saying to them? You're not welcome here. We don't want you here. 
And Jesus says the scribes and the Pharisees are hypocrites because they literally slam shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. If there is a kingdom of heaven, which there is, and Jesus has spent three years explaining that kingdom to his disciples and to the crowds. If there is a kingdom of heaven, and there is, it would surely be right to want to enter that kingdom, right? And Jesus had come to provide that way into the kingdom for the people of God. He literally says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So as people are looking for entry into the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus is saying... I'm the way. Those who were part of that kingdom should be about helping others obtain entry into that kingdom, right? Which means that they should be pointing people to Jesus. But not these scribes and Pharisees. Quite oppositely, Jesus says, they shut that kingdom in people's faces. Now imagine God at the door of the kingdom ready to welcome people in, but these hypocrites step up and they shut the door in people's faces. The people would be most miserable, for sure, and God, the king, would be most furious, right? Who are you to tell who can come into my kingdom? Who are you to slam the door to the only way into my kingdom? Hence the woe, the pronouncement of sure judgment upon them. And how did they slam that kingdom door? Well, the scribes and Pharisees would have said that they were the guides, and we'll look at that more later, who could lead people to God's kingdom. But, Jesus says, they slammed the door in people's faces for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So they promise the path to heaven, but are in actuality headed on a fateful trip like a well-known from the past three-hour tour, right? That is a rare Gilligan's Island reference for those of you who are down with that. A three-hour tour. That's where they're headed. They say they're going to heaven, but they're going to more like Gilligan's Island. Their map of where they lead leads them away from the kingdom of heaven, and the so-called leaders are leading to a different place in a different direction than God's place. So they will not enter themselves... They've plotted a course for Disney World, but they're going to Michigan. There's no Disney World in Michigan, y'all. And there are people following them. Anybody ever been the head of a caravan and like there's four or five cars behind you and everybody's trying to stay together and follow you and you're like leading them and then you make a wrong turn? Whoopsie! And everybody's going to follow you. That's exactly what's going on here. These leaders are going to the wrong place. And not only will they not arrive at the kingdom of heaven, they're leading other people to the place that they're going, which is not the kingdom of heaven, the different direction. So they will not enter themselves, nor will they allow those who would enter to go in. They're headed the wrong direction with people following them keeping both sets of people from entering God's kingdom. They won't allow others to get there because they are prescribing the wrong direction to those who would enter otherwise. Their failure leads others to failure. So, woe to them. 
Now, we'll go to verse 15. You say, wait a minute, what about verse 14? Not in the earliest manuscripts, okay? Your Bible, whatever version you have, might have it. Uh, I think the New King James has. Actually, it does because I put it up here. I remember now. Verse 14 in the New King James says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Again, that thought is in Mark and Luke, but it's not in the earliest manuscripts of Matthew. So a scribe at some point probably inserted this in Matthew's gospel because it's consistent with the same thoughts that are in Mark and Luke, and they probably shouldn't have done that. So the newer, more modern, more accurate translations, in my opinion, omit it because it's not in the earliest manuscripts. And again, if that's something that shakes your faith, let's talk. Talk to me. Call me. Text me because that really shouldn't shake your faith. The fact that we're getting better at Bible translation should increase your faith, by the way. And the fact that we know that verse 14 is not in the earliest manuscripts is good news because it helps us have a purer, better word. Okay? So we're not looking at 14. We're looking at 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So the second of the woes that we'll look at today is here in verse 15. In verse 13, they were slamming the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And here, now they're mobile. Look, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Now this is tough, tough language here. And it's almost a silly scene. Jesus says that woe is coming upon them because they travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. Now first, just for info's sake, if that word proselyte throws you, it just means somebody who is a convert to a religion. Okay? That's important. Um, The Jews had begun in earnest here in the first century and a little before to try to proselytize people from outside of ethnic Israel into the Jewish religion, into the Jewish way of life. So this thought pattern of proselytizing would have been familiar to those hearing Jesus' words. And their efforts, Jesus said, would lead them to travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. Now again, in the 21st century, we take long-range travel for granted. Okay, We can set the cruise control on 80 and drive up the interstate and get somewhere pretty quick. You shouldn't do that, by the way. 80 is too fast. It's a public service announcement. But you can. Or you can hop on a plane and travel 600 miles an hour and be halfway across the world in a few hours. So we kind of take that for granted. But in the first century, you may have access to a horse that could gallop for a little while at a good clip. But more commonly, you probably either ride a camel or more, even more likely a donkey or else you're walking. And that doesn't even address the perils of sea travel at this juncture of history. Can't imagine. I don't want to travel by sea anyway. And these scribes and Pharisees are said to travel across sea and land depicting long perilous journeys to do what? To make a single proselyte. Now that might seem commendable. Man, they do all that for one person. 
But again, remember why they do what they do. They do what they do in order to impress people. So they're going to tell the story of their trip. They're going to tell the story of how I went all that way, all those miles to reach that one person. People are going to go, wow. And they're going to go, I know, right? Thank you very much for recognizing my awesomeness. That's why they were doing what they were doing. To make a single proselyte. So that somebody might be impressed by the lengths that they went to to do it. And also, Jesus adds, when they get that one proselyte, and that one does, well, they convert to the religion of the scribes and the Pharisees. And we've seen that that's not good, right? Jesus says when they do that, and that one person does convert, they make him twice as much a child of hell as they themselves were. Now, we've already seen that the woes are coming upon the scribes and Pharisees because they slammed the door of the kingdom in people's faces. But here, their converting work makes the convert more a child of hell as the converters are. And that's doubly damning. It's damning to the scribes and Pharisees because Jesus just literally called them children of hell. And then he's calling their converts twice as much a child of hell as they are. Again, Jesus is laying the lumber here. If I walk up to you and call you a child of hell, you're probably not going to be very happy with me. You need to shut your mouth, you child of hell. (laughs) What? Yeah, that's what I said. I'm just quoting Jesus. Don't do that, y'all. Okay, We'll get to that at the end. But if we call people children of hell, it's probably not going to be received very well. If I call your children who learn from you twice as much a child of hell, you're probably going to be pretty upset with me too. But the truth remains here. The layers of damnation pile up when one condemned teaches another. One who is condemned teaches another. And that's a pretty serious thing to consider for all of us, by the way. What am I teaching? Do I know that what I'm teaching is leading people to heaven and not to hell? We'll talk about that at the end, too. Why? Why why would they be twice the son of hell? I think it's really, 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 really hard to unlearn stuff. And these guys have went over land and sea to make this one proselyte. And man, they're just pouring it on and they're teaching them all the ways of the scribes and Pharisees. And if you walk up to that one person and say, everything you've heard was wrong. Nuh-uh, my rabbi taught me everything right from the Mishnah and right from the, from the law. And don't you talk about my rabbi. We get this ingrained mindset. And this, this one proselyte, man, he's ingrained. So he's not just taught wrong. He's doubly wrong because his intention is that he's going to defend what he's been taught and the person who's taught him. And so it's real hard to unlearn that. Things we know are true and things we've heard all of our lives. And that seems to be what Jesus is inferring here. If someone converts to a religion and is taught all wrong stuff, it's going to be awfully tough to unconvince them. It's like they're doubly damned. And Jesus calls down a woe on the scribes and Pharisees for just such conduct. But he's not done. We've got one more woe. So it's 322. I think I said earlier 232. It's 322 in the woes that we'll be looking at this week, next week, the following. So we've got one more woe, which we see in verse 16. 
Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. And this next woe was upon who? Same people, scribes and Pharisees. But what does he call them? Woe to you, blind guides. Now that's a zinger there. Let me tell you why that's a zinger. The scribes and the Pharisees literally referred to themselves as guides. Guides to the scriptures and thus guides to God himself. Paul puts it this way in Romans 2. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. And you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. So that's how the Jews, especially the scribes and the Pharisees, saw themselves. They saw themselves as guides to the blind. Well, Jesus calls them blind gods. Talk about a gut punch. They say, according to Romans 2, that they're guides of the blind, but Jesus says they're blind gods. Again, he's, he's pulling zero punches here. And they would feel every nuanced word of it. When he said blind gods, they would go, no, we're guides to the blind. So the third woe here from Jesus to the scribes and Pharisees revolves around their view of what to swear by. What's binding in an oath and what's not. And we saw some of this in the Sermon on the Mount again. Uh, And again, can you see how important the Sermon on the Mount is to the whole book of Matthew? It's very important, by the way, because everything from that point on flows out of the Sermon on the Mount, literally. But look at this. This is something we saw back in Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oath to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. And we had a whole message on those verses. Okay, and you can go back on the podcast site or probably on the Facebook, maybe not on the Facebook, yeah, probably on the Facebook site. You can find that message. It's from a long time ago, though. Uh, but what we saw back then, let me give you a quick summary, was that the traditional teachings of the scribes and Pharisees were in place to give them a kind of escape clause in their oaths. Remember back when you were young and somebody said, well, you lied to me. And you're like, well, I had my fingers crossed. That was kind of what they were doing here with these oaths. Okay? And if you look at what they say here, they've got this escape clause set up uh, back in 23.16. Jesus says that they say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. They're playing word games here. What's going on is that they're saying... That if someone said, I swear by the temple, and then they don't do what they swore, then they could say, well, I swore by the temple. So it's not binding. And people go, oh. Okay. But if they happen to say, I swear by the gold on the temple, of the temple, and then they don't keep it, well, then they're going to get called on it. And we're sitting here going, but that's that's silly, right? Yes, it is. It's silly. They just set up a system where they could purposefully deceive people. 
And it was known to them, and they were okay with it. And then when they were called on something, called for not keeping their word, then they could just say, oh, well, I didn't swear by the gold. I just swore by the temple, so it's not that important. Because if I swear by the gold of the temple, well, then that's important. That's, that's binding. And it sounds crazy, sounds silly to us. And you know what? Jesus agrees. You blind fools! For which is greater? The gold or the temple that's made the gold sacred? So we think their lying schemes are silly. Well, Jesus calls them, you blind fools. Anybody know what the word for fools is in the Greek language? It's moros. M-O-R-O-S. From where we get our word, moron. We would say, you blind morons. Jesus called them morons. But he's really just pointing out their foolishness, the absurdity of their elaborate plans to lie and get away with it in their minds. What they were doing was stupid. It really is. I had my fingers crossed behind my back kind of deal. No, I was looking at your fingers. Well, I had my toes crossed. I went to that one a couple times in third grade. And I was like, shoot, I didn't know that. I'm like, shoot, got out of that. And it's stupid. It's moronic. When in reality, what's happening is they're lying. They're telling a lie for their own benefit. You lied to me. You said this. Well, I swore by the temple. And Jesus says, you are a blind moron. For which is greater... The gold or the temple that's made the gold sacred. I mean, how foolish can you be? I think it shows their love of money too because they think the gold is greater than the temple as a whole. Which is just nuts. The temple was to represent God dwelling with them. God's house of sorts. And this is not the house of the Lord, by the way. We are the house of the Lord. So which is greater, Jesus asks? The gold or the temple that makes the gold special? And they would say that the gold was greater. And Jesus would say, well, you're a moron. Actually, you're a blind moron for even thinking that way. But he ain't done. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Similar thought pattern. Just spoken a little different way. But that's what the scribes and Pharisees specialized in. Tricky tricks with words. Little caveats. So where they didn't have to keep the law that they were so heavily prescribing to other people. They would say too, swearing by the altar, no big deal. That's nothing. That's an escape clause. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, oh no, that's binding. He's bound by that oath. Altar, nah. Gift on the altar, big deal. And Jesus again points out their blindness, their inability, inability to see what's important, what's real, what, what's really just good old common sense. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or that altar that that gift is on that makes that gift sacred? Because you could place that thing in other places and it wouldn't be anything special. It's the fact that you placed it on the altar before God that makes it consecrated. 
Whatever's being offered is nothing in and of itself, but once it's on the altar, then it's made special by the fact that it is being given to the one who is unique and special, which is God Himself. You dummies! The altar of God is much greater than anything that would ever be offered on it. And you build your oaths and your schemes to be able to lie around golden gifts and miss the temple and altar that should be revered and honored. And then he finishes it up in verses 20 to 22. So, whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by by him who sits upon it. You see, it all boils down to the same base, doesn't it? The same element. You say that swearing by the altar is not binding. But if you swear by the altar, whoever you are, you're swearing by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple that you say is not important for your swearing, swears by that temple and by him who dwells in it. Uh Uh-oh. Now who is Jesus referring to? Well, the temple was God's dwelling place, right? In the Old Testament, the glory of God came down and was manifest and tangible upon the dedication of Solomon's temple to the point that the priests couldn't stay in there. They had to run out and remain outside because the presence of God was there so real and tangibly. And God said He would dwell with them on the mercy seat there in the Holy of Holies. But Solomon's temple got destroyed, didn't it? Back in the Babylonian invasion. And Ezekiel details in his prophecy how he saw the glory of God depart from the temple. So the people had kind of lost sight of the fact that the temple was to be the dwelling place of God. And you know what the scribes and Pharisees did? They basically made it their home. They basically made it where they're comfortable They basically made it about who they were and what they wanted. And they forgot this is supposed to be the place where God dwells. It had become their personal place of gain and prestige. And they feigned obedience to God there, but they had elevated themselves to the place of the highest praise, replacing God in His own temple. They made the rules there to benefit them not God. Of course, that didn't cross their minds. So they just made up rules to help them focus on the gifts brought and the gold that decorated this supposed-to-be holy place. They forgot about God! God who was supposed to dwell with them there. And Jesus drives it home fully by saying, and whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by Him who sits upon it. This was the highest level of their false oaths. They could swear by heaven, no big deal to them. Now hear that again. They could swear by heaven, not a big deal. I can break that vow because it's just heaven. They could go back on that oath. But, Jesus says, if you swear by heaven, you're swearing by the throne of God. Because that's where God's throne is. And if you swear by the throne of God, you are swearing by the God who sits on that throne. 
You see, all of this untruth, all of these broken oaths, all of this selfishness and greed, all of it, down to the tiniest oath that they've broken, down to the tiniest bit of selfishness in their hearts, is an affront to the holy God of Israel. Their sin is an affront to the maker and sustainer of the universe, who, by the way, is omnipresent and is literally in every near and remote place in that universe. There's no escape clause. There's no plan B. There's no option but to honor God and love Him with your whole heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So all of this finagling, all these swearing shenanigans are just more and more signs of your ignorance of who this God is and what He desires from you. It is all about your love and service to God, you morons! Your hunger for wealth and the applause of men have blinded you to the glory of God itself. That glory which is supposed to be your very life and passion. And your hypocrisy, your foolishness, your blindness are all seen in your posturing for the praise of men and the filthy lucre of the world that will burn up one day. You fools. You hypocrites. And that's where we're going to finish today. That's where we're going to turn to application today. i got three questions for you today. I don't have alliterated. I've managed somehow to multiply my message here. It's got on here twice. I've got to figure out where it stops and where it starts. Here we go. Three questions. Do you hate what God hates? That's question one that we'll look at in application. The second one's a little longer. Do you think that there are parts of your life that don't belong to or relate to God? That's question two. And the third question is, are you closing or opening the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces? Like, yeesh, Thanksgiving. Give me turkey, right? Do you hate what God hates? Do you think there are parts of your life that don't belong to or relate to God? Are you closing or opening the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces? First one, as far as application goes. Do you hate what God hates? Mm. That's tough stuff, y'all. That's tough stuff. Several weeks ago, we looked at Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. We're not going to look at it today. If you're taking notes, write that down. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. Six things that the Lord hates, seven are abomination to Him. Be good to look at that. We don't have time for that this morning. But we do want to ask the question, do you hate Christian, follower of Jesus, disciple of Christ, child of God, Do you hate what God hates? To ask it another way, getting back to our introduction, do you know what makes God mad? As you get to know Jesus better, does it reveal anything to you and in you that He would be so angry about what we're looking at today and in the next two weeks? We talked last week 
one of our application points was asking ourselves if we're hypocrites in any way. And let me just say that probably applies here again today. We don't have time. We're not going to double the application point. But I think that should be an ongoing conversation that we're having with ourselves. Am I a hypocrite? Because it's obvious that God hates hypocrisy. He's not winking and nodding. Oh, come on, you can do better. He hates it. And let me just say this. Jesus was speaking to the supposed religious people of his day. Sinners are going to sin. They're not hypocrites when they sin. You know who's hypocrites when they sin? Me. Us. The church. And what do people say all the time? The church is full of hypocrites. And they're not wrong. That's not a reason to not come. Walmart's full of hypocrites too. Where are your pajama pants out there? But here's the deal. If we don't hate what God hates, we can't truly love what He loves. Spurgeon said it this way. The godly man, however, does not consider how the world regards a thing, but how God looks at it. We, as Christians... Need to hate what God hates, and God hates evil. The scripture says that God is angry with the evildoers all day long, every day. Watch this Psalm 26 5. David says in the scriptures, I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Oh, it gets better. Watch this, Psalm 139. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. You're like, what in the heck is going on here? Don't ever say heck. It's not a nice word. You should hate heck. There we go. What's going on here? David's talking about people. Right? Am I right? I hate the assembly of the evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. Wicked is a person. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Hmm. Somebody's watching this right now and saying, I knew them Christians were hateful. (laughs) Jesus would say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. Bless and curse not. See, that's the kingdom, y'all. David hadn't seen the fullness of the kingdom. And David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saw the enemies of God and he hated them with complete hatred. And he was right to do that. Jesus comes along and they hated him. And he called them morons. But he also laid down his life for them. As should we. I'm not calling on you to hate anybody today. But let me tell you what. 
Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Not against people. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers. Over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And here's the deal, y'all. Every scheme of man that is evil, every deceitful way of man finds its root, finds its very seed in the evil forces that are present and active in our world. And if you do not hate those evil forces, you are not being a biblical Christian. You should hate evil, Christian. Well, what's evil? You, de- you determine that by the Scriptures, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, by the counsel from older, wiser people than you. Not what makes you feel good. Not what you enjoy. We'll get more to that in the last one too. But I'm going to ask you a serious question again. Do you hate what God hates? Because the Holy Spirit of God in you is not going to love what God the Father in heaven hates. You're like, tell me something to hate, preacher. No. I'll let you figure that out on your own. With the help of the Scripture. With the help of the Holy Spirit. With the help of this church who can teach you and instruct you in the way that you should go. I'm not going to tell you what to hate from up here. We saw today Jesus hates hypocrisy. Okay, so I told you something to hate. Hate hypocrisy. Hate the very pit of hell from where it comes. I'll move on from this one. Do you hate what God hates? The second one is... (laughs) Do you think there are parts of your life that don't belong to or relate to God? I I can swear by the temple, but I can't swear by the gold on the temple. I can swear by my church attendance, but I can't swear by my work. Or or I can swear by my work, because that's not so bad, but I'm not going to swear by my family. And what I mean by that is, we think, uh uh-oh, where am I going to be found out the most? Where am I going to be unchristian the most? Oh, we'll wear our happy face here. And shame, shame we got to wear these masks so we can't see all the saccharine smiles that we wear on Sunday morning. You're like, you're being mean, preacher. Let's stop being fake with each other. Let's tell each other where we're struggling, where we're hurting. Let's swear by the worst parts of us. I swear I am struggling. I swear I'm hurting. I swear I'm scared to death of what's going on out there. I swear I feel like a little kid some days because I don't know what to do. I think that's all of us, right? And all of it comes back to God. You're like, what's that mean? It means this. 
It means your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions, your anxieties, your fears, your failures, your work, your play, your family, your church. It all comes back to how you relate to God. And there's not a single place in your life, in your heart, in your mind, in your hands, in the great wide world out there where you're not accountable to God. There's no segment of your life that He's not interested in. There's no segment of your life that you're not going to give an account for. There is no private sin. There is no hypocrisy that He doesn't see in your thoughts and in your feelings and in your actions. Whether you're by yourself or sitting here with us today. You're going to give an account for all of it. There is not a part of your life, not a part of your brain, not a part of your world that is not under the direct eye and accountability of God. The scribes and Pharisees thought they could make oaths in ways that they weren't accountable for. And Jesus flayed them for it. We are to be people of truth. And not just truth, but people who know that they will give an account to God for all that they have thought, said, and done in their lives. Every part of it. There are no escape clauses. There are no non-binding oaths. Jesus said, don't even make an oath. Just say yes or no. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Romans 14, 12. Ecclesiastes 12, 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Jesus said, Matthew 12, 36. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Give an account of ourselves, every deed, every secret thing, every careless word. Do you think there are parts of your life that don't belong to or relate to God? Because there's not. Finally, are you closing or opening the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces? You're like, well, what's that look like? Well, we know that hypocrisy slams the door of the kingdom in people's faces. Jesus called the Pharisees on that. But watch this. When we think about doors, doors take what to open them? Keys. Scripture talks about keys, right? We've seen it a couple times in Matthew. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Almost done. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Binding and loosing. We saw that also in Matthew 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. 
The Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We just talked about two things specifically in those two passages. Talking about binding and loosing. Talking about keys. Keys to the kingdom of heaven. Those two topics were sin and who is Jesus. There's some keys to those two passages. And if we're going to open the door of the kingdom of heaven, guess what we got to address? We got to address sin and we got to address who is Jesus. And if we're not honest, if we're not accurate about sin and who Jesus is, guess what we do? Door is slammed. The very door of the kingdom of heaven is slammed in people's faces. If I don't tell people that they are a sinner, I slam the door of the kingdom of heaven in their face. If I don't tell people that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the only way to heaven, I slam the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And we live in a world that tells people any way you want it, that's the way you need it. Lord, that was back in the 80s. Whatever makes you feel good, do it. It can't be wrong if it makes you feel good. And we as the church are complicit with this. We not only dismiss their sin, we give hearty approval to it. Because we won't call sin, sin. And we say things like, oh, we're all making our way up the mountain and we'll all get there eventually. We might take different paths, but we'll all get there. God loves us all the same. No, He doesn't. God is angry with the wicked every day. Why is He angry with them? Because of their sin. Buddha will not get you to heaven. Allah will not get you to heaven. Your stomach will not get you to heaven. Only Jesus will get you to heaven. And if I love people, I will tell them that. If I hate them, I'll tell them to go on and do what you want to do. Do what makes you feel good. Do what you enjoy because you deserve that. Which is me saying you deserve to go to hell. And I make them twice the son of hell that I am. You don't love people if you don't tell them that they are sinning. You do not love people if you do not call sin, sin. You do not love people if you excuse their sin and tell them they're all right. You hate them and you're slamming the door of the kingdom of heaven in their face. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. There is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. Anything that does not contain these truths slams the door of heaven in people's faces. Listen to me. We can't be nice and compromise these truths. Jesus would call us moronic to do so. Sin is sin. Only God is holy and only the Son of God 
who lived a perfect life and died on a cross to pay the penalty for my sins can get me to heaven. There's no other way. Confess your sins. Confess your need of a Savior. See Jesus as that Savior. And trust Him that He did die for you and flung the gates of heaven wide open for all who would come. Let's pray. Father, may we not be so foolish as to think that we can scheme or plot or plan our way to heaven or help others do the same thing while getting what we want, doing what we want to do. God, may we not be hypocrites. God, help us to hate what you hate. Help us to see that every area of our lives is laid bare before your eyes. And God, help us to be those who open the gates of the kingdom of heaven instead of slamming it in people's faces. And yes, we do need your help here. Convict us of our sins. Help us to call sin, sin in other people's lives because we love them. Help us to hate what you hate and tell the world that you hate it because your word tells us that you hate it. And may we love people enough to confront their hypocrisy and their foolishness so that they might see Jesus as the way, as the truth, and as the life. Help us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. If you want to congregate, go outside. We will love you better out there.